Oh, God, we're going to be on our way, too. Just a few hours left. You're going to go with us. That's what Joshua assured us. And because of that, we're not afraid. Whatever lies before us, you'll be there by our side. Open up our minds as we think on this, these words of our Lord Jesus himself. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have you ever had a conversation with a very, very wealthy person? My friend Torres Montgomery, he's not the very, very wealthy person, but he told me about an interview. He's he's the pastor of our Harbor of Hope Church, sits on our pastoral staff. He told me about an interview with Abigail Disney. She's the granddaughter of Roy Disney, who's the brother of Walt Disney, and the two of them put together the Walt Disney Company. So she's an heiress of that uh, Disney fortune. So thecut.com is a website that carried this uh, interview just about a month ago. Fascinating, because this is, a, this is an expose of a very wealthy person sharing her mind and heart. Now, we don't know if she... <laughs> She she was asked, and she wouldn't answer the question, how much she's worth now. But what we do know is that she gave away, she's given away $70 million since she turned 21. That's a lot of money to just give away. So you can imagine what's left. Anyway, Sarah McVeigh does this interview. It's powerful. Let me just read a few lines. You can check it out later. The website's on your study guide. You can investigate. So here's, here's, here's the opening question. Growing up, did you know you were wealthy? Answer, Abigail. At least when I was young, my parents were were really showy people. The money didn't really change them until later. Actually, they were really proud of being humble people. An oxymoron, I know. They wanted to raise us with the sense that we weren't any better than anyone else. Well, good for you, Mom and Dad. Did you have a moment, though? So the uh, interviewer is kind of pushing into this. Did you have a moment in your life when things started getting lavish and you realized, oh, I'm super rich? Abigail, when I went off to college, Michael Eisner came in and reinvigorated the Disney company, and then the stock price, which was basically my my family's entire net worth, was 10 times more, and then 20 times, and then 50 times what it had been when I was growing up. So all of a sudden, we went from being a comfortable, upper-middle-class people to suddenly, my dad has a private jet. That's when I feel that my dad really lost his way. So we're listening in on this wealthy person. And that's why I feel hyper-conscious about what wealth does to people. I've lived in one family as a child, and then I didn't even recognize the family when I got older. Oh, so, so now the interviewer pushes in more. Well, in what ways did your dad change other than having a jet? Now, she replies, actually, having a jet is a really big deal. If I were queen of the world, I would pass a law against private jets because they enable you to get around a certain reality. You don't have to go through an airport terminal. You don't have to interact. You don't have to be patient. You don't have to be uncomfortable. These are the things that remind us we are human. (laughs) So when did you stop riding the private jet? Okay. Well, the moment for me when I decided I couldn't fly in the plane anymore was about 20 years ago. I had to fly out to California for a meeting, but I had to get back to New York by the next morning for a conference. And the guy who ran our family's company put me on the 737 alone. That's the private jet, a 737. We're not talking about this little citation. 737. 
private jet. He put me on that alone. I flew across the country overnight by myself on that giant plane and I was sitting there there thinking about the carbon footprint and the number of flight attendants and the other pilot on call and what it was costing and I just wanted to be sick. By the way, my parents always made fun of the fact that I thought it was terrible and awful because they were very comfortable in what they were doing. Well, listen, the interviewer shoots back. That's just the way it is with rich people, isn't it? Well, yeah, a lot of people go back and forth between these identities. My parents' financial life changed in the 80s, and I was an adult by then, and I watched them kind of relax into it. I think of it as slouching into money. Hmm. They were in their 50s, and they liked the shortcuts that wealth gave them. It's very hard to say no to things like that, but what ends up happening is you end up being surrounded by people who don't tell no ever. And as my father's drinking problem grew, he was surrounded by people who wouldn't say, you have a terrible drinking problem, you need to get some help. Hmm. Is it hard to trust someone who's interested in you, for you, when you're not sure if maybe it's your money they're interested in? Oh, that's the worst, Abigail Disney replies. And I've gotten a really good radar about that now. I can spot that a mile away, what's happening. And then she ends the interview. Listen to this. She ends the interview with these words. And you've got to see these words. Please put them on the screen for us, please. These are her words at the end of the interview. She says, they did a study at the Chronicle of Philanthropy years ago where they asked people who inherited money, what amount of money would you need to feel totally secure? And every single one of them, no matter what they had, named a number that was roughly twice what they had inherited. Her conclusion, so that's what you need to know about money, right? If that is your primary measure of success or value in life, then good luck with that because it will never feel good, end quote. My, 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 my. She ought to know. I want you to write that line down right now. Come on, write it down so we won't forget it. Grab your study guide. It's the last one in this space for a while. Grab your study guide, pull it out. Let's put the title slide on the screen, please. Those of you that are watching right now on a television somewhere, live stream, or you're right here. You can do this all on your, your uh, smartphone right here. There's our website there at the bottom, www.newperceptions.tv. So we're wrapping up this mini-series, How to Survive the Coming Economic Crisis. Title of this one, The New Wealth Formula. You click onto that, you'll have the study guide, and we're ready to go. So let's get Ab- Abigail Disney down right now. Let's make sure we have it right. Put it on the screen, and it's in your study guide. And ushers, that's, that's right. Thank you for making sure uh, our friends and worshipers have those uh, study guides. You can do that, guys, while, while we go ahead and start filling in the first one. Bless you. Thank you. Okay, let's, let's do that again. Abigail Disney. So that's what you need to know about money, right? If that is your primary measure of success or value in life, then good luck with that because it will never feel good. Which raises the question, then then when does it start feeling good? When will it ever feel good? Good question. Let's examine what could be a new wealth formula. Once upon a time, there was a dusty young teacher with a bunch of other youngish followers, 12 of them as a matter of fact. And he spoke words that are so radical. Get this. These words are so radical that they got left out of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Problem is, everybody thinks that's everybody's thinks that's the only Sermon on the Mount in the Gospels. No, 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 no. Dr. Luke said, I got a version of the Sermon on the Mount. You need to hear this one. But we don't go to that one. We like Matthew. But 
it's radical enough. And after hearing Abigail Disney, we need to go to Luke. And so open your Bible to Luke's Sermon on the Mountain. Actually, it's called the Sermon on the Plain because Luke says he came down from the mountain and then spoke these words. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 6, please. Luke 6. Luke 6, let's pick it up in verse 20. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Matthew says poor in spirit. Luke says, it's the poor. He's blessing. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will, la- you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that's how their ancestors treated the prophets. Now I have a few woes I want to speak. Oh, there are no woes in Matthew, but Luke has them. Here they come, number 23, number 20, verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you, verse 26, when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Wow. During her interview, by the way, Abigail Disney spoke this line. We didn't read it. It's on the screen right now. Money is morally neutral, she says. It does not in and of itself make you a bad person. And, of course, she's right. Money doesn't make you a bad person. I mean, Jesus pronounces these woes. He is not somehow indicating that if you have money, you're evil. In fact, may I remind you, Jesus had numerous wealthy friends, and he had a handful of wealthy followers, disciples. We're talking about Matthew, the tax collector. We're talking about Nicodemus. We're talking about Joseph of Arimathea. We're talking about possibly Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Money didn't make them bad people. He wasn't saying they're bad any more than it makes you bad. But Jesus is making a point. We better get it. Let's put Jesus right beside uh, Abigail Disney in your study guide and on the screen. Here we go. Abigail Disney says money is morally neutral, but Jesus says money is morally dangerous. Write that down. That's the point he's making. Woe to you who have a lot of it, Jesus intones in Luke's rendition. Be careful now. Look out. Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, you're getting... That's a lot. That's a lot. Look out. Paul comes along, friend of Jesus, almost as poor as Jesus, and Paul makes this very same point. First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Paul writing, those who want to get rich. That's the key word, want. If your whole goal in life is, I'm taking this degree, I'm going to, I'm going to go out into this world because my goal is I'm going to be wealthy. I'm going to be wealthy before I'm done. If that's your goal, listen up. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. It doesn't say you fall to the temptation, but you do fall into temptation and a trap ooh, ooh, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin like Abigail's dad and destruction. Why? For the love. Well, that's the key word. The love of money, not money. The love of money is a, a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money is morally dangerous. Jesus makes the point. Paul makes the same point. Be careful. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. Be on your guard. And then Jesus goes on in Luke's sermon. 
Drop down to verse 37. Jesus says, do not judge and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn and you'll not be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Verse 38, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Scribble that down, please. For, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You ever seen uh, kitchen measuring cups? I thought about bringing some, but I said, man, everybody's seen measuring cups. There's nothing fancy about that. You can get a one cup, you can get a half cup, one third cup, you know, all that. A little quarter cup. What Jesus is saying is, look out, whatever cup that you choose to dispense your life, that same size cup will be used with God dispensing his blessings. Whatever measure you use, that's the one that's going to be used on you. You know what? If you are harsh and you judge the poor, you know the problem with the poor, expecting me to help them. You know what? They're a bunch of lazy bums living off of welfare. That's the problem with, the, that's the problem with America today. You, sir, use that kind of reasoning. Guess what? That kind of reasoning will be turned right around and it will judge you. Now, you can flip the coin over because it works both ways. You want to be hard on the wealthy. You know the problem with the rich? They have no idea how the rest of us live. Looking out only for themselves. Grumpy, selfish misers. That's what they are. How do you know? You have prejudged. And the word for prejudge is prejudice. The poor prejudge the rich. And the rich prejudge the poor. And the people in between prejudge everybody. Isn't that how it works? Jesus says, be very careful, sir. You want that one quarter measuring cup for you to dispense your goodies? That's what we'll do with you. One quarter measuring cup. The measure you choose is a measure we'll use. Criticism. I tell you what, folks, it never makes sense to criticize. It makes no sense because you have no idea how that wealthy person is living. You have no idea what that poor person is experiencing. Lay off of that. Critical people have developed the skill of judging. Usually it's their very own fault. That's why they're so acutely able to see it in others. I mean, like somebody once quit. Before you criticize someone, walk a mile in their shoes. That way you'll be a mile away and you'll have their shoes. <laughs> right? <laughs> criticism. I tell you what, forget criticism. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Oh, how should I treat people? <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. Treat others the way you wish to be treated yourself. You know what? If the world lived at... Seriously, if the, if the world lived by the golden rule, what a world this would be. If the church lived by the golden rule, what a world this would be. Come on. Don't judge. Throw that measuring cup away. Oh, let's read that one more time. Verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You remember that the, you, 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 you remember this, don't you? That when the ancients went shopping, they were never asked, will it be paper or plastic? No, they didn't have that. When the ancients went grocery shopping, you know what they did? They took, the, took their outer garment, reached down to its edges, pulled it up. Okay. All right, Mr. Mr. Merchant Man. Use that measuring cup right there. Give me five of those. That's what Jesus is saying. The word for bosom in Greek is, is the NIV nicely translates it lap, but it's just, it's going into the bosom. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, it's starting to, whoa, 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 whoa. You got too much in here. Look at it. It's spilling over. How am I going to get this home now? That's what Jesus is describing. Give, and it will be given back to you. Press down, filled up. Whew. In fact, I love the way Eugene uh, Peterson renders it in the message. 
Fill this in, will you? So he takes Jesus' words, does a nice job with it. Give away your life. That's what Jesus is saying. You'll get your life back. Oh, you'll find life given back, but not merely given back, but given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. And then the last line, generosity begets generosity. That's the line I wish you'd go home with today. In fact, let's ISO it on the screen. Just ISO it on the screen, please. Generosity begets generosity. We use an expression today called pay it forward. Isn't that what we'd say? We say pay it forward. That's what he's talking about. Generosity begets generosity. I want you to memorize that word. You know why? Because God is huge on generosity. Get a little writer's cramp right now, but let me just run a bunch of them by you. Look at these lines from Scripture. Psalm 37, verse 26. The righteous are always... What's that word? It's not on the screen. Oh, there it is. The righteous are always what? Come on, write it down. This isn't a hard exam. You already know the answer. Every blank is going to have that in it. Let's see. The righteous are always generous and lend freely. Oh, by the way, their children will be a blessing. Because guess what, mom and dads, to be or mom and dads right now, children are experts at picking up stinginess or generosity and photocopying it into their lives. So if you are a stingy parent, and they know, if you're a generous parent, they got it. They will photocopy that into their lives. Man, don't you want your children to make a, make a valuable contribution to society, be a valuable member of the church? Model generosity to them. All right, here's another one. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. The little measuring cup you use for others will be what is used for you. See, everybody's coming back to what Jesus is teaching. Proverbs 19, 17. Oh, boy, look at this. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to whom? Can you believe that? When you give money to the poor, you are lending money to God. God says, I need a loan. I need to help these people. Can can I get a loan from you? Good. You give it to the poor. I'll spot you. Whoever lends to the poor, gives to the poor, is lending to God. Wow. You're generous. Just like Jesus. (laughs) Ah, Here's another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Remember this Paul writing now. Whoever sows sparingly, tiny little measuring cup, one quarter, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You will be enriched in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Hallelujah. Why does it result in thanksgiving to God? Because when you're generous, when you pass it on, when you pay it forward, that generosity so blesses the person that that person says, wow, there must be a God. Who would think to do this for me? And by the way, by your generosity, you're, you're saying something about God. The picture of God that that person gets now because of your generosity is he must be a very generous God. Guess what? He is. Generosity begets generosity. Pay it forward. If he's been generous with you, be generous with the world. Oh, well, here's another one. 2 Corinthians 8, 2. Oh, by the way, this one says the poor can be generous. No, it can't be, Dwight. Watch this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, we're talking about the Christians in the little town of Macedonia, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Man, 
They made a very major, major, major gift to the church in Jerusalem, suffering from a debilitating famine. They did it. They had nothing, but they did it. Wow. How could they do that? One more. One more. 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul says when he's done talking about being generous, he then writes this line, thanks be to God for his indescribable capital G gift. Well, we were talking about with the kids just a moment ago. How do you pay, how do you pay off that gift? You can't. We're in debt forever. But it's the happiest debt in the universe because it saved our lives. Generosity will go on begetting generosity after generosity after generosity because of that original generosity. My. It doesn't get any better than this. Generosity begets generosity. Oh, I got an email. I got an email from a friend of mine the other day. Just a few weeks ago, actually. Hi, Pastor Dwight. Hope you're doing well. As usual, I listened to your sermon today when I'm out on my run. Your message about giving touches a nerve in us. So that was a few weeks ago. It really resonated with me, though. And while I'm sure you receive a lot of stories like this, I want to share just a couple examples of where this has been really true in my life. So when we moved, so this person is out of state. When we moved, we made the decision to temporarily stop paying tithe. You know, because both of us didn't have a job. So why would we return tithe now? We'll wait. Well, eventually we both have a job. But guess what? We forgot all about paying tithe. That's what she's, that's what she's saying here. We forgot all about paying tithe. And you know what? During that time, something was off in our lives. Our marriage went through a time of testing that we've never had before. I'm not implying that because we weren't tithing. God somehow removed his blessings from us because he continued to bless us in many, many ways. But I think there's something about being dependent on and trusting God that leads to good things in all areas of our lives. I think she got it. So we moved again. Now in this move, we said, oh, we learned and in this move, we decided we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to take a break from tithing. Things, things are still tight, but somehow we managed to fit tithing in. Our, transi- our transition here has been full of the same bumps that any major move entails, but somehow each time we pay tithe, it's like renewing our connection and commitment to God. Then last March, listen to this, last March, we realized that because we've been tithing, there, for, for some reason there was, there was more, more money to give, and we, we thought of a ministry. We called the ministry leader. He said, we want to make a gift. He said, really? How much? We told him the amount. He said, do you know what? I was just counting my numbers, just going over them. That's the amount exactly that we needed for this mission. Are you serious? She said, brought us tears of joy to think that in some way God used our small gift to make a difference in other people's lives. Long story short, I completely agree that there is power in giving. It's just another opportunity to see God's faithfulness in action. You go. You go, husband and wife. That's it. By the way, did you notice? Did you notice? Not a word about, hey, we got a windfall from our grandparents' estate. $10,000 in the mail. Nothing. Nothing. nothing, None of that. It just kept going. But did you catch the intangibles? I jotted them down here. The intangibles in that email, we found new joy, life is growing better, our marriage is stronger, we have more resources from which to give more than we had before. There's something about being dependent on and trusting God that leads to good things in all areas of our lives. That 
email has nailed it on the head. That's Jesus' point. You be generous. And generosity will beget generosity. Give and it will be given to you. Pour it in. Pour it in. You can't even put a price tag on some of those gifts. Where do you get, where do you get a notion like this? Generosity begets generosity. You know where we got it? We got it from the cross. One last time. Put that line, please, on the screen from Desire of Ages. At the cross, God's love for the sinner is stronger than death. He will spare nothing, however dear. Favor is heaped upon favor, gift upon gift. The whole treasury of heaven is open to those he seeks to save. That's the truth of Calvary. The whole, you, got, you have access to everything we own. Everything. Calvary is God's paying it forward. And if you've been blessed by that paying forward, guess what? It's not supposed to stop with you. You just keep paying it forward because generosity begets, begets generosity and generosity begets generosity. That's how it works. Starting right now, you're heading out into the world, conquer the world, now that you're finished with Andrews University, take this with you. Generosity begets generosity. If you will be a generous human being wherever God places you, you will stand out and God will honor that standing out. So right now, we're getting ready to walk out of this space. My moving out of the sanctuary for three months. And guess what? We're being watched. Yeah, we're being watched. You say, what are you talking about? We're being watched. Because I got another letter just two weeks ago. I got to share this with you and then sit down. There's a prisoner in America and he's been watching. You. He's seen you here. He's been plugged in to this worship service, service in the prison every Sabbath afternoon. He was born into an Adventist home. He went to an Adventist academy. He's been in prison for 16 years. He can't have access to a computer, but he can watch TV. And they get 3 ABN in the prison where he lives. He opens us up. May the Lord bless you and keep each of you at Andrews University through our Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of feels like he's a part of our family here. Being raised Adventist has led me to understand that we are all children of God before anything else. Currently, I'm working on my 16th year of incarceration. Along this path, God has been the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. God has been the potter and rebuilding my brokenness. He's always faithful and has never left me wanting more except his presence. Wow. He says, by the way, I've been watching. And he, he indicates this in the letter. I really love this talk about that you guys are having about renovate heart and house. It's been fun to watch as this thing proceeds and eventually he'll see this and recognize himself. He says, you know, as I watch that, I say, oh, that reminds me of being in an academy. That's so cool. I'll fix up this church, repair the roof. I want to have a part. I want to have a part. 
I can go on and on about the many blessings I receive in watching the program, the healing of not just my own heart, but the heart of many others around. Watching Anders reminds me of my own academy days as a cradle Adventist. I want to have a part. So he put a check. Except he can't write checks. So the, the state which has incarcerated him wrote the check and he stuck it into this letter. And I got it two weeks ago. It says at the top of the check, Rentivation. That's close. <laughs> Rentivation project. Pay to the order of Pioneer Memorial Church and then the address. Issue date, two weeks, three weeks ago. The, the amount. I wish I could give more, he says. The amount, $3.53. I don't know if they require you to put a statement in if you're giving money or what, but he put a statement in that $3.53 zeroed his account. He gave everything he had. Three dollars and fifty-three cents. You know what? This check is worth way more than three dollars and fifty-three cents. This check is going to reap thousands of dollars where his story is told, like Mary Magdalene, where the story is told, it'll be repeated. And generosity begets generosity. And that's how the kingdom of heaven operates. Generosity of Calvary poured out into our hearts. You can't damn it up. Let it out. And $3.53 later, he let it all out. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. This is, this is what you meant. Generosity begets generosity. No private jet, no home of his own, just a prison cell. Believing God honors, God honors his gift. And Jesus said, you give it to me, boy, and I'll give it back to you. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing your pockets because you trust me. You know what? You're so generous. I trust you. Now that's a friendship. In jail. In prison. Generosity begets generosity. And so today, we say goodbye to this space. 60 years. 3,000 consecutive, how many? 3,092 consecutive Sabbaths since Valentine's Day, 1959. 3,092 Sabbaths, this church and these pews have welcomed worshipers from all over the world, from every class. And this has been our home. And it'll be our home three months from now, thanks to the generosity of Anderson University for letting us worship in the HPAC. Sanctuary will be barred. Sabbath schools, everything goes on. All the children's Sabbath schools, nothing, nothing is changing. New perception goes on. It just has a whole new surrounding for it. And our friend, he'll be watching. 